Pastor Doug last week preached in Daybreak, and he used an illustration about a parakeet, and I was watching that from home, and so I, it reminded me of a story about a parakeet. So um, I wasn't going to tell it in this service because you didn't hear his story about a parakeet, but then someone who watched this morning in Daybreak said, are you going to tell the story about the parakeet? So here we go. Uh, it has nothing to do with the sermon. I just think it's hilarious. It's not true, so it's okay to laugh. You'll understand that at the end. Um, two guys are laying carpet for a woman. I don't know if she's selling her house, and she, but she's doing the whole house. And she's gone most of the day. Um, and these two guys are laying carpet. And I don't know if you've ever tried to do lay carpet like around the stairs or cutting for corners. That's really hard to do. So there's an art to it. But these two guys are just getting done. You know, they just finished with the whole knee kicker thing. And, um, and one guy's like, well, the owner's not here. We're almost done. She'll be here in a few minutes. So I'm going to go outside and I'm going to have a smoke. And he goes, can't find it. Looks on the windowsill, trying to think of the last place he had his pack and his lighter. And, and he goes, uh-oh. And he sees over in the corner near the little register that's by the window, the AC register, he sees a lump in the carpet. And if he pulls it up, they got to restretch the whole thing. So he, he looks around, he takes his hammer. He's just beating it flat. Good enough. Walks outside to his truck takes his knee pads off. He's about ready to sit down. And the owner who had come home into the driveway came around. Uh, she'd come in the back and she'd come out. She's kind of breathless. It's like, have you seen? I just, I don't, what to, oh, oh, have you seen my parakeet? Yeah. And he looked on the dashboard and saw his smoke sitting there. Now, I didn't say he beat up the parakeet. And I told you the story's not true. But if you try to cover up the things you've done wrong, sometimes other people get hurt. So, that has nothing to do with the message. <laughs> um, all right, so here we go. Acts chapter 24. Now, I want to tell you something about this passage. Uh, I want you to watch for a couple things. One, uh, remember that Paul had been, he'd gone to the Sanhedrin. They brought, up, brought him up on charges. Um, he got one, sac one faction fighting with another faction, those who believed in the resurrection, those who didn't. They started, they thought he was going to be torn limb from limb. Pastor Chris did a great job of describing that passage last week and, and talking to us through it and how God's providential care, even when it doesn't look like it's there, is there. And, and then there was this plot of 40 men that were going to kill, uh, kill Paul. Paul's sister hears about it. How? I don't know. Uh, but she um, tells her son, Paul's nephew, to go. And, and so, all right, they don't want him dead yet. So they got a bunch of Roman soldiers, and they, in the middle of the night, they rushed them off to Caesarea. So we find ourselves in Caesarea, and uh, he's under trial. Now, the Sanhedrin, that's that... that, that uh, priestly leadership court. Uh, they send the high priest and a bunch of elders, other priests, and, and, uh, and a lawyer, Tertullus, to, to bring their case against Paul to the Roman governor, Felix. He's the governor of Caesarea. I want you to watch the contrast between Tertullus, and I will read with the dripping false magnum, magnanimity that he, that he offers. I will read it as sarcastically as I can because that's what he's doing. You can tell by the original language. Uh, and then I want you to see the contrast between how this guy approaches this governor and how Paul defends himself. And then we'll read the rest of the chapter and we'll hear about Paul's continued imprisonment. 
Um, now, I want you to know a couple things about this passage before we start reading it. One, often when pastor types read, uh, we, we go, oh, well, yeah, everyone kind of knows this story. And it's kind of like if those of us that are old enough that had grandparents that had a black and white TV with the bunny ears or rabbit ears, and, and you had to go, little, the youngest grandchild had to go hold it to get a better signal, and you had the horizontal f- kind of flapping. You could watch. That's how I watched the, um, one of the moon landings. Um, and it was flickery, flickery. And you can see what's going on. You can hear what's going on. But sometimes if you watch that and then you put a super HD TV and 52-incher up there, and it's, just, it's a big difference. You can tell. So sometimes pastors, they read a passage and we find a couple of words and we go, oh, that's way better than black and white. They'll, they'll love this. They'll want more. There's nothing like that here. So I just told you all that for nothing. There's no, you can read this story and get it. And I'll only offer a few things about the governor Felix. But I want you to watch the contrast. And I want you to keep in mind the title of the message as we read. Five days later, this is after he had been ushered off to Caesarea. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have, he's talking to Felix the governor, we have enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you any further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we are bringing against him. Then the Jews join in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now, I want you to know something about Felix. Felix is brutal. And Tertullus knows this. Felix, if you think about it, Rome was the known world, the empire of Rome. They had conquered and subjugated people all around the known world. So they, they had this idea that the power of Rome must be sustained. And so anytime a group of people would start to rise up to push back, they put them down and Felix was notorious for blood running in the streets. Anytime a group of rabble-rousers or troublemakers, and that's why Tertullus uses that word, calling Paul a troublemaker. Every time, and you have to think about it this way, um, as Rome projects its power and you earn or purchase the right to govern a particular city, Felix was either uh, awarded governance of the city because he'd been a great warrior or he had enough money in his family and a Roman citizen that he bought the right to rule Caesarea, which is a big place, and it's named after Caesar. And so he, he's there. If you want your life to go well, if you want your life to continue, you do not want to be the governor where an uprising came up and killed Roman soldiers or took back territory. So any governor, when, when something terrible would happen or when some people would come up or, or someone would, would draw attention to themselves and it looked like that there's going to be some kind of sense, uh, some kind of pushback toward Rome, they'd kill them. But they wouldn't just kill them. They did awful things with them. Has anyone ever heard 4th of July earlier this month? You, ever, you know what a Roman candle is, right? 
You know, they light the thing. Some people hold them and they poof, poof, and they shoot off these things. Well, a real Roman candle is this. When they would find an insurrectionist, when they would find someone who's rabble-rousing or troublemaking, if someone's found guilty, they would take this person, hang them on a wall of the streets of Rome, and light them on fire to light the streets. That's the brutality of Rome. Tertullus is under, he's a subject of Rome. He's a lawyer for the Jews. And he comes in, he's like, oh, you've done nothing but great things. He slaughtered many of his own people, many of Tertullus's people. But he's, he's setting him up. He's flattering him. He's oozing, dripping with false flattery. And then he uses the word troublemaker all over the world. See, Rome wanted to make sure that every province, every city stayed subjugated. And if, because word would get out, let's say you're in Caesarea and you and a group of a band of brothers, you rise up and you're gonna, you're gonna take down. They know that if ever, there's more people subjugated in a given area than there are Roman soldiers. So if, you, if everybody rises up, you can take back the city for a while until they send reinforcements and destroy you. So they don't want word to get out that some people can rise up. That's part of subjugating people. But he says this troublemaker has been stirring up riots all over the world. Felix, you could be the hero by putting this guy down. Calls him a troublemaker, vague accusations, and then it's Paul's turn. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been the judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that uh, no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now, that they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that, the, that are written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor. And to present offerings. And I was ceremonially clean when they found me at the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. See, Paul knows, Paul's a brilliant man. He knows the law, the Roman law. He's a Roman citizen. He's also an expert in the law of the Jewish faith. He was a Pharisee and he probably knew the law and the prophets by heart. Paul's a brilliant intellect. Um, now, I've talked to you before when, when the whole Paul and Apollos thing, uh, Apollos was a great orator. He was a great speaker. Apollos was like the Francis Chan or the Tim, Tim Keller of his day. Just an unbelievable, he had an unbelievable ability to communicate. Paul, probably more like me. Not an intellect. He's an he's, he's a intellect beyond. But he's probably one of those guys that rambles on a little bit, can't pronounce magnanimity. Just a guy. But this man could think. If you look at the book of Romans in the first several chapters, the Christology that he develops 2,000 years later, people like me and greater minds than I will ever be can't even can't get their hands around what Paul was able to understand in a few short years after Jesus went to the Father. 
Paul is no slouch intellectually. He is a brilliant mind, and he knows the law. And he knows that if, uh, if Tertullus convinces Felix that he's rabble-rousing all around the world, he knows that just like here today in the United States, that if you're accused of a crime, you have the right to face your accuser. So these people are saying, there's people everywhere that know all about this. And Paul says, there's some people that we know he, everywhere he went, people were trying to get rid of him. We know that some people have some things against him. He says, if they have something against me, bring them. And if these, have, these people have something to say, let them say it. That's all. Paul's not, he's not flattering Felix. He says, look, you've been doing this a long time, so I'll tell you what's going on. He just tells the truth. He goes on. Or these men who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing that I shouted as I stood in their presence, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today, which was brilliant, by the way, because he got the two factions fighting against each other. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, which is what they called the Christian movement back then, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will declare your case, or I will decide your case. And he ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewess, and he sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. And at the time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with them. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, Festus left Paul in prison. Not much going on here that you can't see. The Jews want Paul dead. And legally in Rome, they're not allowed to kill him. So I don't know what their motives are. I can see two. One's really bad. One is, I, I have a hope that that's what they really believe. Really bad. At worst, they, they like their social standing. They like that they get to hobnob with the rulers of Rome. They like the high priest and the, and the members of the Sanhedrin and even the, the lawyer. They, they like their social standing. They like that they have great esteem from their people and others. They, they like that they have this role that Rome will come to them when something's happening within the Jewish community and they will ask them to, to figure out a way to make peace. So while they, yes, they might be playing both sides, kind of like Nazi sympathizers, they're, 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 they, like, they like the freedom that they have. And so anything that threatens that freedom, anything that threatens their social standing, anything that makes it so that they, they might lose what they have, they want to shut down. That would be their worst motive. And that still happens sometimes in church, in the church universal. I'm not saying that here. Uh, today, people, people don't want to lose their place of honor. And so they get threatened by others and they push them away or accuse them of things. It happens because we're human. It happens in politics all the time. And you see it. And I'm not talking about one side or the other. Both sides want me to agree with them and hate the other side. That's what they do. So worst case scenario, they kind of like their social esteem and they like their power. 
Best case scenario is that Ananias, who knows that the Sanhedrin had beat to death or stoned to death the former high priest, he believes, maybe he's a purist, maybe he believes that, that his job on earth is to make sure that the name of God is lifted high, that it's never desecrated or blasphemed, and that God who said that, that temple worship is how we're supposed to go about it, these rites, R-I-T-E-S, and these rituals and these festivals and, and the way we behave day to day, the way we interact with our oppressors, all that kind of stuff, there's a certain way that God prescribed. Now, some of the people, some of the people in the Sanhedrin believed in, in the resurrection, both of the uh, of the righteous and the unrighteous, that one day will be judged, some will go to hell, some will be with God forever. Others didn't believe in that. They believe that our job, as God put it, is just to make sure that his name is glorified on this earth as long as we live here. Now, whichever way Ananias might fall, I hope that he thinks that Paul is a blasphemer. I hope that he believes that he's trying to do what's holy and righteous, and he doesn't have much of a case, so he's even pleading with Rome, trying to let them know that this man is a bad man, that he's out there rustling up trouble and it's just going to be better for Rome as it's going to be better for us if this man is no longer doing what we think he's doing. I hope that that's his motive. I hope that he believes he's hanging on to the purity of the faith. And Paul hopes that's true of them too. That's why he was willing to go to Jerusalem. He wanted to proclaim to them the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah that they've been waiting for since Moses talked about it, since the beginning of time that, that he's come. He wants the people of God, the Jewish people, the select people, the, 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 the set aside ones. He wants them to know because so many had rejected Christ. He just wants them to know the truth. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Paul is so convinced that he's willing to suffer to make sure that these people here the truth. And they're so convinced that he's telling lies that they want him dead so that he doesn't do it anymore, thus blaspheme the name of God. I hope that that's Ananias and the elders' motive. But what's Paul's motive other than he wants to proclaim the truth that is Jesus Christ? Not a truth, not just the truth about what he's done and what he hasn't done, at the temple or otherwise or at the Sanhedrin, but Paul wants, he, he's utterly convinced that everyone should hear that God adores them, that God loves them so much that he's willing to die so they don't have to, that he's willing to take their sin that they've committed. They don't have to kill another goat or another lamb or another thing for it. They get to allow Christ's sacrifice to be once and for all forever. Paul is so convinced of the truth of who Jesus is. And he's not just that Jesus, there's not just truth about Jesus. Jesus is the truth. We don't know the way that you're going, Thomas. Well, we don't know the way, you know. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's all about, Paul says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. To Paul, nothing else matters. And so he shows up, and one guy is oozing falsehoods and flattery. And Paul just says, if they've got something to say, let them say it. As far as what they're saying, not true. And what does he get for it? He gets released, right? And he gets to go off and preach the gospel all around the known world for another 35 years. No, he gets put back in jail for two years. Now, if you tell the truth, you get imprisoned. It's a good message. If you do what God wants you to do, you're going to suffer. Now, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. 
that Paul, at, at his conversion, when he was blinded by the sight of the glory of God and he was sent off uh, to, to wait on a straight street, God came to another guy named Ananias and said, I want you to go to Paul. I want you to give him back his, his sight. And Ananias is like, you, I, I, know what he, I know what he's done. And God says, don't worry about it. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. And some of us are called to suffering, but all of us will suffer some. Paul did nothing wrong. He followed the will of God. He was compelled by the Spirit to go up to Jerusalem. He was warned by his brethren that bad things were going to happen. He even was ceremonially clean so that they couldn't accuse him of anything. He's, he's beaten, he's, or he's arrested, he's beaten, he's hurried off to Caesarea, he's tried, and even though he's innocent, he's still in jail. And there's a whole movie based on that two years, by the way. It came out a couple of years ago. Uh, Jim Caviezel, who was Jesus in the Passion, he's Luke in this story, but it's called Paul, an Apostle of Christ. Very well done, just so you know. Uh, I really like it that it, ta- it shows the, the, the camaraderie, kind of the human guy side of, of Paul and Luke. It shows the heart of the church for the poor and the, and the, and the suffering. And it shows this interaction between, uh, between Felix and Paul. Now, I don't know if all the stuff that happens in there is historically accurate. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not, but it's, it's well done. But I want you to notice something. If you want to get what you want, don't be a follower of Christ. Because Paul suffered much. But he didn't get what he wanted. You, you think he wanted to go back to jail? You think he wanted to be snake bitten? You think he wanted to be shipwrecked? You think he wanted to take 39 lashes? Three times? You think that he wanted to be in prison and beaten and pushed out of every city he went into? No. Paul suffered much, and he did not enjoy it. But to live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul didn't want what he wanted. He wanted what God wanted. Not my will, but yours be done. And I want you to see what God did right here. What you see, two-thirds of the New Testament. Now, not all of it happened right here, but two-thirds of the New Testament is written by the Apostle Paul. And while Paul is imprisoned, some of his imprisonment right there for two years, he wrote letters to the people that he loved in the churches. And those are books of the Bible. If Paul were set free and he was wandering around the known world, evangelizing yet again and going to yet another unreached people group, he probably would not have had time to sit down with his scribe, Luke, and write letters to churches that explain to us who Christ is, that explain to them what God is doing, that encouraged them, that corrected them, and exhorted them, that challenged them, that, that talked to them about, don't forget about the poor. Don't forget about it's Christ and Christ alone. If, if, if Christ was not dead, was not crucified and then resurrected, then all of this is farce. Those are the things we learn from Paul's imprisonment. Paul in prison wrote letters. So God had something bigger in mind, even though Paul did not get what he wanted. See, a thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And I, I think of it this way. He comes to steal your Hope, 
kill your joy and destroy your faith. But I have come, says Jesus, that you might have life and have it in all of its abundance. Paul is utterly convinced of all the abundance of Christ. In fact, he even makes up a word, makes up several words in another plot. When he's trying to describe the, the, the goodness and the vastness and the size of God, he says, uperic periso uper panta. And we, we translate that as immeasurably more. It's infinitely more abundantly above all he can ask or even dream up. Paul says, to him who is able to do infinitely more abundantly above all uh, I can even dream up. That's, what, that's how convinced he is that God is so capable, so able, so willing. It's un I can't say unfathomable. I'm Paul, I'm not Apollos. It, it's indescribable. See, okay, this is not rhetorical. Anyone who knows it, just yell it out. Paul said when his suffering, he said there was this thorn in his flesh. And we don't know exactly what it was. I just always point like it's a cramp, but it's, it was something bigger than that. But he says, three times I cried out to God to take this thorn from me. And do you guys remember what God's answer was? What? Say it loud. My grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. Now, this is something Paul is utterly convinced of, and I think most of us are not. This is not an accusation. I just know in myself. So if, if I were suffering and I said, God, just take this away. You know, my, my, I don't want to have another surgery. My shoulder, and it's not, it's fine. But it, my shoulder, I don't want an eighth surgery on my shoulder. Could you just heal it? And he, if he were to say, well, my grace is sufficient. I'm like, fine, I'll deal. Because that's kind of how I think of sufficiency. It's, it was sufficient. How, how much money do you have for retirement? Ah, eh, it'll be sufficient. But that's not what Paul thinks. So if the blood of Christ is sufficient to forgive you your sins and make you right with God, is that, eh? No, that's everything. Paul believes in the sufficiency of grace in such a way that it is infinitely more abundantly above all he could ask or even dream of. His petty little or huge pain, his suffering, his getting 39 lashes again, his being in prison for two years when he did nothing wrong, to Paul is, I have another opportunity to speak truth. I have another opportunity to, to, to share the gospel. I am so convinced that God's way is bigger than my way. Come what may, I'm convinced. I'm speaking, I'm living, I'm speaking, and I'm believing the truth that is Jesus Christ. So I ask you folks, what is it that you want more than what you want? I mean, your circumstances in a moment, who doesn't, who, who wants to go to jail? Paul doesn't. Who wants to get 39 lashes? Paul doesn't. Who wants to be bitten by a poisonous snake? Paul does not. Who wants to be shipwrecked? Not me. Greg almost was on the way up to Ludington the other day. Highest seas that he's ever been in in that 30-year-old boat he's in. His wife strapped on the life jacket and cinched it tight. He had to be terrified. He'll, he'll play it off like, ah, oh, it's okay. But six foot swells in that little boat. <laughs> if you're about to go bankrupt, do you want to go bankrupt? Of course not. If you're about to be divorced, do you want to be divorced? Probably not. If your boss... Always sees your flaws, but never what's good about you. Do you want to continue to be in a place where you're unappreciated? Of course not. But do you want what Christ wants more than you want what you want? Is his grace overflowing? 
Is the life, I, I come that you might have life and have it in its abundance. Do you have it in its abundance? Do you say, not my will, but yours? Because I believe personally that I have no idea what's going on in our world. Except one thing. Even in the, right here in the States, fear is a traded commodity. I don't care what news channel you watch. One group wants me to believe what they believe and hate the other group. Vice versa. And the way they get ratings, which gets advertising dollars, which makes millions for the whoever owns the companies, is fear. True or not, whether they're telling the truth or not, it's fear. So we have a world that is transfixed on fear of what those people might do to me. What hope is there for a world whose currency is fear? The truth and nothing else. Hope in Christ and nothing else. Mercy from Christ and nothing else. Grace from Christ is more than enough. To be unshakable people, no matter what comes our way. To be, to be a people that are so convinced that God loves even his enemies that we're willing to share the truth with them, knowing that they'll probably punish us for doing so. Because God loves them so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Do we care enough about the truth? Can we be like Paul, that even though it doesn't go my way, even though those people are wrong, even though they're lying about me, whatever it may be, can we believe so much that to live is Christ, to die is gain? Because he is able to do infinitely more abundantly above all we could ask or even dream up. False flattery or simple truth. And Paul suffered for his simple truth, but we benefited from his suffering. We know Jesus in part because Paul was imprisoned and he wrote to people he loved and now we're the recipients of the letters he sent to them. God knows better than we do. You know where I'm going, says Jesus. We, we, no, we don't. Well, you know the way that we're No, no, whoa, I don't know the way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Folks, that's all we've got. And you know what? It's more than more and more than enough. Will we be a people who believe the truth, live the truth, and speak the truth? I pray to God we will. Let's pray to God together. Almighty God, we bless you. We praise you that you're almighty. We're so thankful. We love you because you're grace-giving, gracious. And we trust you because you know better than we do. Lord, I ask that you give us the knowledge we need to believe the truth, to live the truth, 
and to speak the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God, our Father. Amen. So I don't know why this occurred to me, but I just, I just realized that uh, I've been preaching uh, with sermons for a long, long time, since probably 92 or 93, but I've been preaching regularly for just over 20 years now. Uh, regular worship services on Sundays starting in February of, 2000, or of, of 1999. And I just want you to know something, that I'm more convinced of the gospel and the truth of it, and that the only thing in my life that's really reliable is what the scripture tells me than ever before, not less, more. I pray that you will devour the scriptures and the truth of them in such a way that you will be more and more convinced that God is able to do infinitely more abundantly above all you can ask or even dream up. And that he wants to do that in, for, and through you. Believe the truth that is Jesus Christ and share it with everyone you come in contact with. The Lord bless you, and he has. Keep you, and he will. Make his face shine on you. Be gracious to you. The Lord turn his countenance toward you. The Lord give you his face and smile at you and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in the peace of Christ.